Good job. All right. Well, welcome to Emmaus Church community on this Easter Sunday. I'm so happy to see you here. My name's Nathan, and um, this is our 10th, I think this is our 10th Sunday here in this place on an Easter Sunday. So uh, we're making this, <laughs> we're making this a habit. Um, and I'm grateful for all of you who continue to serve and to come so early to set up and to turn this into a, a sanctuary. If there's space between you, scoot to the middle for us and help the ushers out maybe by giving them a sign. There's still a few folks looking for some seats. Um, if you're sitting on, seated on the aisle and there's a basket under your chair, would you help us out by grabbing that basket, handing it down? And if you'd like to hand off your contact information, you're welcome to do that. It helps us to stay better in touch with you. If something's changed or if you have a, a prayer request or any kind of comment, you can fill out one of the cards that's there and we'll collect them a little bit later this morning. That's just a tool for you to use if you'd like to. And then finally, raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. I'll be putting the scripture on the screen this morning, but it's always helpful to see it in context. So if you'd like to have a Bible and you don't have one, um, grab one of these, take it with you if you like, and uh, we will go from there. All right. Well, happy Easter, happy day of the resurrection. Today we join with Christians all around the world and all throughout history in proclaiming the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essentially, we are acknowledging this morning with the church universal and with the church historic that a Nazarene preacher in the first century named Jesus had a three-year ministry and then on the day before the Passover feast, which was a feast of freedom, a feast proclaiming freedom, Jesus, this Nazarene preacher, was killed. And then the day after the feast of freedom, he rose from the dead. Right? That is what we're acknowledging and proclaiming today. That, those, that there are so many reasons for us to celebrate the resurrection, but essentially I think we can boil it all down to one. And that is that uh, the resurrection changes everything. I mean, the resurrection is just an absolute game, reality, uh, paradigm changer. And so uh, we gather today to recognize that when Christ overcomes sin and death, that the thing which had for always had the last word is it's now, it's not the end of the story anymore. And so the whole story gets redirected and redefined because of the resurrection. And the way I'd like to try to illuminate this probably, for many of you, familiar reality is by telling you a story. Um, and, and the story that I want to tell is the story of one of Jesus' brothers. His name is James. And I love this story because it's a story in the shadows. It exists between the lines in the New Testament. In other words, you have to kind of hunt down and find little teeny clues throughout the New Testament to kind of piece together what becomes one of, those, one of the most, I think, compelling stories in the Bible. I love it. I think that it's fascinating, and I'm excited to share it with you today. The Bible tells us very little about the family of Jesus, but this is what we do know. He had a mother. Her name was Mary. He had a father. His name was Joseph, except Joseph wasn't actually his biological father. According to Mary's own testimony, an angel of the Lord appeared to her before she was married, said that she would be impregnated by the Holy Spirit 
that the baby that she would carry would be the son of God, that she was to name him Jesus, which is what happens. And so then this man that everyone sort of assumes, because he's married to Mary eventually, is the father of Jesus. Joseph is actually just kind of his adopted father. And then later, the writers of the Gospels reveal the names of several brothers, or half-brothers and half-sisters of Mary, I mean of uh, Jesus. And in fact, in the, in the gospel that Matthew writes, he records a scene in which Jesus is preaching in his hometown. And uh, this is part of what Matthew writes. He says, coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. They asked, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did he get all these things? And they took offense at him. So let's just pick one of these siblings and talk about him. His name is James. He's Jesus' little brother. And let's trace his story. Here are just some of the glimpses that we get of James, some of the clues that the Bible reveals to us about this fascinating story. And it is essentially a story about the power of the resurrection. That's what this story is about. It's about the power of the resurrection. The first glimpse that we get into the life of James, Jesus' brother, might be a bit surprising to you because the first thing we read about him is that he does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is not convinced, right? The Apostle John writes that even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Did you know that? And then later, the Gospel of Mark, Mark says he tells the story um, about, about Jesus preaching and huge crowds gathering, and it feels like it's kind of getting out of control. And so when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And then when Mary and James and the rest of the brothers show up to the house where Jesus is teaching, they can't get inside because the crowds are so thick. And so they send a message to him. And the message is, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. To which Jesus replies, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks at those in a circle around him and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. And then he says, anyone who does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother which must have gone over really well at home later that night, right? Here's another peek into James's life. Occasionally, um, this is an aside, occasionally I'll officiate a wedding, um, and I'll hear people talking about a member of the family, and it's not because of something they're doing, it's because they're not there. And so typically it'll happen at the picture of the family after the wedding, and somebody will kind of innocently remark, they'll kind of notice, hey, where's so-and-so? And then you'll see the person kind of whisper, they weren't invited, right? Or, or sometimes it's like, they didn't show, right? So here, the second glimpse that we get into the life of Jesus, is, uh, into James, is interesting because of where James isn't. It's three years after the start of Jesus' ministry. He's now been condemned to death. And not only does James still not believe in Jesus, he isn't even present at his brother's public execution. In fact, he doesn't appear to be a part of Jesus' life at all at this point. 
And the, the, one of the ways we know that is because one of the last things Jesus does while he is hanging on the cross is he takes care of his mother. He makes arrangements for his mother by entrusting his mother not to his younger brother, which would have been the custom, but by entrusting his mother to one of his disciples, John. And so James's disapproval of Jesus and of Jesus' teachings apparently has spilled over even into the family, so that James isn't even there. He's not even um, in a relationship, apparently, with his mother. And so John, a disciple of Jesus, is going to have to take care of, uh, of, of Mary. John is the one who actually records this. He says, when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, John's referring to himself, standing nearby, he said to her, Jesus says, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother, and from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So you have these two early glimpses of James, and they're very uh, surprising because of what he doesn't believe in because he's where he's not. He's unconvinced and he's not present. And so it comes as quite a shock, I think, when in Acts chapter 1, in the first description of the Christian church, James is united with the Christian church in prayer. The same guy who about a month ago was not around... Uh, is praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit with the rest of the Christians. Luke, who writes Acts, says they all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then what's even more surprising, a fourth glimpse into his life, is that through several scenes in the book of Acts, and through several places in the writings of Paul, it becomes clear that not only does James become a believer in Jesus, but James becomes the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem, which is like the mothership. He is the leader there. How do we know he's the leader? Well, when people preach the message of Jesus in other cultures, they return to report to James. And in Acts 15, there's a conflict because the gospel is being brought into different cultures with different cultural norms and realities. And so they bring the conflict to James, and James is the one who establishes the judgment as to what will be essential and what will be unessential or non-essential. Even the apostle Paul seems to follow the instruction of James in the end of Acts. And then near the end of his life, James, the brother of Jesus, he writes this open letter to the Christians and it's seen as so authoritative, it's so widely embraced that it's canonized as part of Scripture, and it's in your Bibles today. It's called the book of James. So the question I want to ask this morning is simply this. What happened? What happened to James? How does he go from non-believer to leader of the Christian church? And the answer, simply stated, is this. He encountered the resurrected Christ. Right? He encountered Jesus as resurrected, and that changed everything. Here's how we know that. There's just five words tucked in to the end of a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. That's all we see, really. Um, this is what Paul writes in a, in a letter that he writes to the Corinthians. He's giving a message about Easter. He's talking about what we're talking about today, and this is what he says. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then here's the story he's going to tell. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, 
and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is the way Paul refers to Christians who have died. Because, because of the resurrection, death is not a factor anymore. So Paul says they've fallen asleep. And then he says this, Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, to me, Paul says. So Paul's preaching the message of this weekend, the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's giving support to the claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead by listing different people in different groups that saw him physically as a resurrected person. And what's so beautiful to me is that one of the people to whom Jesus Christ, who is risen, appears is his little brother James. James who wasn't convinced. James who wasn't even present at the time of Christ's death. Then he appeared to James. Jesus, in his overwhelming love for his little brother, appears to him personally to reveal the truth to him. And we have this overwhelming evidence that it changed his life. We don't have a single detail about the encounter itself. Apparently, the encounter itself isn't really that important. What we do have is undeniable evidence of this massive life change, this complete turnaround in the life of James. Because for James, when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed. So, that's the story. Uh, what do you do with something like that? How do you respond to a story like that? Resurrection changes everything. Uh, let, me, let me offer three things that I think, three specific things that I think it changes, three specific ways. It's exhaustive. No stone is untouched by this reality. Literally, the cosmos has been adjusted because of this reality. What used to be the end is not the end anymore. But let me point out three specific things in hopes of trying to make this uh, as practical as I can. First, the resurrection changes your perspective. It has the power to change your perspective. The, the dominant lens through which we in our culture see Jesus is this. How can he help me? What can Jesus do for me? And while there are, of course, remarkable blessings associated with following Jesus, if you pursue Jesus as some sort of personal spiritual assistant, you're going to miss him because it's completely missing the point. He will not fit into that box. He will not serve that role. Jesus is not trying to fit into your expectations. Jesus is not trying to make sense to you. Okay? Don't be surprised if Jesus doesn't do what you expect him to do in your life. Don't be surprised if Jesus doesn't make sense to you. He didn't fit the expectations or make sense even to his own brothers, right? Mary, his mother, who got the preview before the movie started, she had a hard time really getting on board with what this was going to actually look like in practicality. The truth is Jesus is on a mission to restore the whole world to himself, and that mission affects us, and what's even more powerful is that mission involves us, but it's like that, 
Jesus doesn't join you in your plan. You're invited to join Jesus in his plan. And the reason so many of us miss it is because we miss it there. We keep expecting him to perform according to our criteria. And that's just radically misunderstood. That's a, that's a completely wrong starting point. Jesus hasn't come to fit into your plan. Jesus graciously draws you into his plan. And that is the designed plan for your life. James's perspective for the first half of his life was, my big brother, he's not fitting my plan. He doesn't, he doesn't match my view. He's not, he's not uh, performing according to my perspective of what he should be doing. But then James encounters the resurrected Jesus, and from that point on, it's not even about James's plan. Who cares about James's perspective, aside from the reality of the truth of Christ's resurrection? And I think part of the reason James becomes such an authority is because he gets that so thoroughly. Part of the reason he can be entrusted by the church to establish judgment on the basis of what is actually the core of the mission of Jesus is because he so thoroughly gets, he's been convinced because he encountered the resurrected Christ. It's not about him. God so loves the world that he sent his only son to save the world. And maybe you could personalize that by saying God so loves me that he, he, he's going to keep, he's going to save me from thinking that my life's all about me. Right? That's how much he loves me. It's not all about us. It's about so much more than us. Jesus wants you to see that. He wants to change your perspective. He wants you to participate in something that's bigger and more powerful than you and than me. Uh, here's a, a, yesterday. Yesterday I turned 43 and a half. Yes, I did. Yeah, thank you very much. I keep track of that. You never know, Right? It's good. You've got to celebrate the little victories all along the way. Um, some 43 and a half. Um, so um, the point of that is this. For almost half of my life, uh, for 18 years full time, I've been involved in Christian ministry. And that's, that it, friends, that's long enough. That's long enough that I'm entering into this season where kids that I led to Christ as teenagers are now living full, productive lives as adults that are uh, all about serving other people. Uh, children that I baptized, that, that, that I talked to maybe for the first time about Jesus, are now embracing as their purpose in life something that is so focused on making the world a better place, on helping people, on serving people in a, in a variety of ways. So powerful. To be, in a perspective, to be in a position where you can see the change in people's perspectives. Because I remember them when they were these stinky little pimple-faced teenagers, right? It was all about me. How can Jesus help me? How can you prove it to me? Because I'm smart. I'm 13, right? How, how do I know that Jesus loves me? And now it's all about others, it's all about, God, what do you want from my life? And I'm seeing people that are laying down plans and expectations and are surrendering their lives in ways that are just inspiring. And I'm like, wow, look at how their perspective has changed. Look at how the resurrection has changed their whole perspective on what they're doing here. What happened? Well, she got to know the resurrected Jesus. And so her whole perspective changed. He spent more and more time with the resurrected Jesus 
So he came off the pages. He came out of the history. And he became a real, like Josh said, we're not remembering something today. It's a reality. And so he, he leans into that reality and his perspective change. Resurrection changes your perspective. Secondly, resurrection changes your practice. It's not just your perspective. In other words, it's not just the way you think. I'm always living up here. But it's not just the way you think. It's, it's the way you live your life, the way you do life, your practice of life. Here's how that happens. The resurrection invites you to live a life of faith. The resurrection invites you to live a life of faith. <clears throat> Consider this. Consider this. All who saw the resurrected Jesus embraced him as Lord of heaven and earth. All who saw the resurrected Jesus embraced him. And that's worth pointing out for these two reasons. Because the gospel writers are remarkably honest about the challenges that people in any other situation have in embracing Jesus. For instance, they point out that many first-hand witnesses of Jesus' miracles were unconvinced and unmoved. We sometimes read this and we go, oh my gosh, how can they not know? If I were there, if I saw a baby be raised from the dead, if I saw a blind guy receive his sight, oh my gosh, that would totally convince me. It didn't convince a whole lot of people, right? Um, Jesus miraculously feeds 15,000 people out of one boy's lunch. They want to make him king. The next day he won't do it again. They leave. That's how long that lasted. Right? Jesus heals a man who's acting like an animal because he's possessed by demons. Do you know what people do? They accuse Jesus of being empowered by Satan. They don't get it. They remain unmoved, unconvinced. Jesus heals a man born blind. You'd think they'd celebrate. They don't. They curse the formerly blind man, and they start trying to plot a, make a plot to kill Jesus. They are not convinced by his miracles. Many are. Most are not. It's one of the common surprises that people share with me when they begin to read the Bible. It's this discovery that most of the people who see Jesus perform miracles are not convinced. It doesn't work. We think, oh, that would work, but it doesn't necessarily work. They remain unchanged. That's before the death and resurrection. Now, the same is true for after the resurrection. You've got writers of the New Testament, people like Luke, Peter, Paul, recording the frustration of the fact that when they tell people that Jesus rose from the dead, they don't necessarily believe. And they're like, we saw him ourselves." And some people are like, I'm in. And most of the people are like, sorry, not convinced. So before, they don't, they're not conv convinced and they're unmoved. After, the same sort of thing. But when Jesus appears to you, the resurrected Christ appears to you. There is no question. The people who encounter him personally, they are forever changed. They're forever changed. So that means two things for us, I think. One, that when Jesus appears to you, there will be no more questions. It will be, it'll be clear. You will realize with graphic reality, right, with amazing clarity, the truth that he is that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Even Paul, who was in the, in the midst of arresting and persecuting Christians, became convinced of this truth in an instant when the risen Christ appeared to him. When you see Jesus as he is, there will be no questions. And the second thing that this kind of reveals to us is that until that point, faith will be required. Until that happens, faith is still required. Before the resurrection, those who follow Jesus had to take a step of faith. 
man, am I going to put my whole life into this basket? Am I going to trust this Jesus? After the resurrection, people like you and me, we hear about the resurrection. We also have to take a step of faith. Faith is still required. It's not a blind faith. It's not a groundless faith. It is rooted in the resurrection. The resurrection changes your, your practice, the way you do life, by inviting you by inviting faith. And resurrection invites you to live a life that is characterized. Live a life. What characterizes your life? The resurrection is a personal invitation to you to allow faith in Christ to characterize your life. Right? So in my pain, in my pain I find comfort. Where do I find that? In the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And in my sadness, I find real hope. Where? In the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And when I'm confused, I can find clarity. Where? In the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. When I'm afraid, I take courage in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. When I don't even know who I am, I discover the core of my true identity in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. The resurrection invites me to live a life of faith. In Jesus Christ. So resurrection doesn't just change my perspective on life, the way I see it. It doesn't just change my practice of life, uh, the way I live it. But a third thing, and I never do this, but yes, I'm going to use another P word, uh, uses the resurrection changes your purpose uh, for life. One of the most compelling observations of those who encountered the resurrected Jesus those who encountered the resurrected Jesus in the Gospels, they changed directions. They just, they just changed directions. Right. The travelers on, on the road to Emmaus, they're leaving. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're leaving their Christian community. They're, they've, they've, they see Jesus as a failure. They saw him die. It must be over. And then they encounter the resurrected Jesus at a meal. And they get up at once, at night, and they head back the direction that they came. They go from leaving their faith in Jesus to proclaiming their faith in Jesus. Like, just turn around. Like a U-turn. Uh, their, their purpose has changed. Same thing happens to Peter. In fear, he denies knowing Jesus. Then he encounters the resurrected Jesus, and Peter's purpose changes. Same thing happens to Jesus' brother James. He's not convinced. He's not even present. And then Jesus appears to James, and he encounters the resurrected Christ, and his purpose changes. His whole understanding of why he does what he does changes. The same thing happened to my dad, who was self-sufficient, didn't want God, was skeptical of religious experiences. And then he encountered, in a mystical way, the resurrected Jesus, and his whole life changed. And it changed gradually, and it changed in an instant, both. And at different times, it meant different things. And the purpose changed. So much so that now he's at a place in his life where he's motivated to work so that he can give more money away to other people. I mean, talking about a radical change in orientation, a radical change of purpose for why you do what you do. Now, that change happened in an instant. It also took root and matured over many years. It's still growing. 
When we talk about the change of purpose, we're talking about the result of more than just an encounter. We're talking about continual surrender to that encounter, continual surrender to the ramifications of that encounter. What does that mean? It means that the, the point of the encounter is not just feelings, right? The point of the encounter is the change in perspective and the change in practice, the way you do life, and a change in purpose, like why you do what you do. And the point becomes clarified over years of surrender and years of growth in wisdom. In other words, the resurrected Jesus appeared to James to change him, right? To change James. Not just for the next hour. Our culture loves experiences and encounters. And Jesus is into that, but the point is not the next hour. The point is the rest of your life. That's the kind of change that this resurrection is intended to catalyze. Transformation is both an instant and a process. Toward that value of process, let me quickly offer a couple of resources because it's important that we lean into this. A couple years ago, wrote this book, um, uh, and it's intended to be read in the weeks following Easter. And they're available, seven ways to experience the resurrection here and now. That's what the book's about. And if that would help you to kind of lean into this idea, gosh, I went to church, this guy talked about resurrection changing people, I have no idea what he was talking about. Maybe the book will help. Uh, we, there's like 12 copies left and they're $5 and they're at the info table back there, if you like. Um, I hope that would help. And then secondly, we're starting a new series next week on the teachings of Jesus' brother James from the book of James. He focuses on making the spiritual more practical. And so that starts next week. And if you want to lean more into this idea, I invite you to come back next week and be a part of this in, in, um, very practical series. It's called Now Do This. And we'll walk through some steps towards practically embracing the resurrection. So in conclusion, let me just say this. The Easter Sunday, I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing every year. It's the same story that we proclaim and we celebrate and we remember and we prepare for. We dress up a little or whatever for this story. It's the same every year. Uh, you know, you come to church on Easter, you're going to hear the same basic thing every year. Uh, but this is good. This is good. And it's good, I think, for kind of maybe two kind of groups. It's so important because some of us need to revisit the core reality of our faith, that Jesus rose from the dead. He overcame sin and death. And we need to ask ourselves this reality that we almost take for granted, potentially. Am I surrendering to this reality? Is the resurrection changing my perspective? To what degree is the resurrection of Jesus affecting my practice of life? And has the resurrection even begun to adjust my purpose for life? The ways I think and the things I do and the reasons for doing it. It's probably a lot of us who are familiar with this doctrine, this truth, this historical event. We just need to surrender to it again. And then, and then some of us, ma'am, you've heard this story because you're an American, you've grown up here, or you've spent a lot of time here. You've heard this story before. But... My concern is that many of us are just like Jesus' brother, James. We know a lot about Jesus, but we have remained tragically unaffected by his story. Tragically unaffected by his story. Bibles are so cheap here, we give them away. Right? It's so safe to gather and worship here, we haven't even thought about the ramifications of what happens when we walk out the doors today. And yet, we're so familiar, and we can remain tragically unchanged by it. 
we still think we know better than Jesus about how to do this thing called life. <laughs> we still think, I think I'd rather do it my way. The reality of the resurrection calls people in both groups, the longtime Christian and the not yet Christian, to humble themselves before the reality of the risen king of the world. It calls all of us to humble ourselves before Jesus. And, and to do that simply uh, by, by praying a prayer of the acknowledgement of, I need you. That's essentially it. That's essentially it. And I want to invite you to pray that. Maybe you've prayed that a hundred times. Maybe you've prayed that since you were six. Maybe you've never acknowledged your need for Christ. And this morning, I want to invite you at whatever level, wherever you are, to risk living a life based on faith in the resurrection and to acknowledge as the core essence of that your need for Christ. So pray with me for a minute if you would. Please reveal yourself to us today, Lord. May we encounter you as you are. Risen and triumphant, the only true source of hope. May we place all of our lives in your hands. May we trust you to rescue us. May we, at a deep level, acknowledge that we need you. Whether for the first time, or that we need you in this part of our life that we've never really surrendered to you. I pray, Lord, that your triumph over disease and brokenness and sin and anger and lies and all of the stuff that breaks us apart, that your victory over that would be a source of hope and that we would, we would just tie ourselves to the mast that you are. And we would say, come whatever, I am not letting go of Jesus because I recognize that I need him. And would you hold us and carry us into the joy of your resurrection? We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in great hope. Amen. 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 Would you stand up with me for a minute? Well, one of the core values